it's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I want guys to play. I want my team to be fearless. I want them to play free. I want to go. I want to take the risks that other people aren't willing to risk. And I want players to own the game. Um, you know, in a nutshell, my coaching philosophy is the golden rule. I coach the way I wanted to be coached. It's probably that simple. Our guest this week is Joe Crispin, head men's basketball coach at Division Three Rowan University down in Glassboro, New Jersey. Joe, one of the greatest players ever to come out of Pittman High School in southern New Jersey. Also one of the best players come out of Penn State. Uh, a long pro career. And, and Joe, thanks for stopping in. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. So as we're talking here, uh, you're a couple of weeks away from uh, the end of the season. You guys at Rowan went to the NCAA tournament second round. How long does it take you to decompress, to put everything in context <laughs> and, and kind of uh, tie the bow on the previous year? Uh, in one sense, longer than you would think. In other sense, shorter than you would think. I mean, uh, I, it's easier, I think, when you feel like you did what you could do, um, that you were successful with the group you had. And, and overall, I felt that way. Uh, but longer in the sense that oh, I thought we could have done more. Uh, that's just kind of how I'm wired. No matter how we end up, um, unless it's a national title, um, I'm going to think uh, we could have had one more, could have had two more in us, could have had this in us. Um, so that never really shuts down for me. But overall, I, I'm thankful. And um, I got there pretty quick. That I, I was thankful for the year we had. I think I know the answer to this from knowing you and actually covering you during your college career at Penn State. Was coaching always a goal once the playing days were over? It kind of was, but um, it was really, really on the back burner, um, especially early in my playing career. I, I was really set on playing as long as I could. Um, it probably wasn't until about midway through my career um, that it really became obvious. Um, it should have been always obvious. I mean, my grandfather was a coach. My dad was a coach. My uncle was a coach. You know, we sat around the table talking hoops all the time, uh, my grandparents. And and I was constantly complaining, like more than most players, and had ideas and liked being in charge. So it probably should have been really obvious, but it wasn't. Uh, I actually thought I was going to go into pastoral ministry earlier in my career, and I loved studying theology and all sorts of things. Um but probably about six years into my career, I was in Spain, and it just became a kind of, what are you even thinking? This is obvious. Like, and, and then the rest, the second part of my career was in large part, and I viewed it in large part as just preparation to be the best coach I could be, and um, it really did turn out to be that way, I thought. You mentioned Spain. after your, And we'll talk Penn State and all that, but I'm very curious. Looking at, I found, I think, Ukraine, Spain, Italy, Turkey, Poland, Greece. Is that the, the cumulative list of your overseas stops that yeah, I miss six anywhere? six countries, nine different years in one way or another. Um, and naturally, we played. And people say, well, what country did you play? And I'm like, well, I played in every country. Like, it's tough to find a country I didn't play in. But uh, as far as living and, and settling in for a season or half a season, those were the six. Overall, the overseas experience, was it? Was it great? Did it depend on the place you were? What were the, the levels of enjoyment and stuff you got out of it? Uh, I didn't enjoy it as much as I should have. I think later in my career, I was better at enjoying it and realizing what I had. I was fortunate with some good jobs. I was paid pretty well. Naturally, nobody thinks they're paid enough, but um, I, I was fortunate. You know, I had the NBA tag early. So when it was time to go overseas, uh, it wasn't like I was getting stuck with some bad situations or super low pay. 
Um, so I have a lot of respect for guys who start low and, and work their way up because I didn't have to do that. But um, the big thing for me that I realized probably throughout my career is, is you know, people say, hey, you, you became a professional basketball player. You know, you got what you want. And I thought I wanted to be Steve Nash. I, I, I didn't want to be bouncing around in Europe playing for some so-so coaches, some good coaches, and some crazy coaches. You know, I wanted to play in the NBA for 14 years and, um, you know, be an all-star and ball out um, and, and play that way. So I didn't get what I wanted as a player. But by the end of my career, it became very, very apparent that I was getting an education for coaching that I could never overestimate. I mean, it was invaluable. Here I am playing for you know, with Summer League, I mean, Tom Thibodeau, Scott Skiles, Scott Brooks, Phil Jackson, Pat Riley, the various coaches I had overseas in different countries, they do things different way, uh, especially for college coaching, the style of play is very applicable. There's no defensive three-second rule. Um, the way the European game has kind of come over here, you just, I learned a thousand times more by doing what I did. And also, I had to survive. And I tell people all the time, like, if you need to learn how to win to survive, you get good at it. It's a lot better than reading a book. And it didn't matter if my team was dysfunctional. You had to find a way to win or you lost your job. <laughs> so you figure those things out. And from my standpoint, um, I usually tell my guys, like, if I got something to teach them and I got something to tell them, I have a story that goes with it. And that means a lot. I have heard and read various guys' accounts of playing overseas and they've raised from you know high profile to sketchy. Well, I better cash the check as soon as I can because there might not be money there Friday. Where did you have any situations like that? Where once you kind of got in, going, I don't know. Part of the reason I didn't play overseas more uh, is my first experience was my second year out of school, um, and I went over to Greece, and it was a Euroleague team, a really really good team. Uh, we ended up coming in second to Panathinaikos in the finals. And by the time I left, they owed me half my money. And during probably a month period, I, they were giving me, I remember at one point it was like 10,000 euros in the back room, and I'm hiding there in a pillow before I opened a bank account. So here I am playing for this EuroLeague team that's really, we really were good. And my impression was if this is the highest level of basketball, I ain't, I'm never coming back. I wanted to go back to the NBA in the worst way, so I ended up spending more time in the minor leagues uh, because of that negative experience. And then I still have more stories. I mean, you know, we have fines for losing, even though the, you know, the GM made ridiculously stupid personnel changes. I had, you know, I was in Sicily, and it was like two months, and you're going, all right, listen, eventually you got to pay me, right? <laughs> I know you're going to, which is true. Like in Sicily, it's Domani, Domani, like. So I, I saw a lot, and then I had other ones that were right on time on the day. So, um, yeah, I got plenty of stories when it comes to the circus aspect of things, too. Can you share one or two? I think the biggest one that comes to mind, and this is my experience in Greece, was uh, my first one, and it was probably the craziest. And uh, the biggest one, the story I often tell is we were in the – two things broke out in the second round of the playoffs against – Olympiacos, who's one of the biggest clubs over there. And we were typically, we would have played in the uh, Olympic Stadium um, that was supposed to be under construction in preparation for the Olympics, 2004. It was not under construction. <laughs> like they were taking their good old time, which everybody found out later. And so we're playing in a tiny gym, um, you know, that 
wasn't supposed to seat all the people it was supposed to seat. And at one point, um, two things that, that really stood out in this series. The, the first was um, we won the seat, the best of three series in four games. Um, <laughs> figure that one out. And we, there was a controversial call that really probably didn't make that big a difference after game one. Uh, we won the game at our place. Uh, we blew, we got blown out game two. We blew them out game three. But after game one, I came into practice the next day, and they said, we, we're waiting for the ruling. I said, what ruling? The ruling on whether we have to play the game again or not. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> the game's over. Now, the game's not over because Olympiacos has good political connections, and they then the next day we say, no, we don't have to play it. Okay, good. We won the series. Now we win the series. The next day after we won the series – New ruling comes out. We need to play, replay game one. So we played game four of the best of three series and won the best of three series three to one. All right? Where <laughs> else can that happen? And you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars on the floor here. This is professional basketball, really good players. Yeah, it was nuts. And the second one was during that series, we had a fight breakout between our fans and the riot police. Yeah. <laughs> the fight breaks out in the middle of the game. Half my team is up in the stands breaking up the fight between the fans and the riot police. One guy's on the speaker. There's stuff being thrown on the court. Olympiacos is running off the court. I'm sitting on the bench behind the plexiglass just shaking my head, wondering (laughs) when I can get a flight out of here. And sure enough, the fans won the fight. And the riot police left what everyone referred to as the fan section. And... Um, my wife wouldn't even come to the games at this point, by the way. And uh, sure enough, a, a reporter asked me after the game, like, what did you think happened? I said, I think this place is a complete circus. Like, <laughs> I don't know what hey, – no, I, I don't even know what to tell you. And they, they, the, the reporter says, well, the, the police went into the fan section. Like, he was outraged. And, and I just said, they? listen, man, I come from the United States of America. The police can go where the police want to go, especially in the midst of a basketball game, Right. And sure enough, in their mind, no, it was it was the riot police's fault. They they were coming into where they shouldn't have been. So that was the mentality over there. I mean, firecrackers on the court, all sorts of just craziness. Um, you know, those were my big ones that stood out. I had some other ones with uh, money and stuff like that, but you know, a lot of it was it was really good for me to say the least. Now you did get a shot in the NBA. Uh, I know specifically with the Lakers. Pretty good Laker team, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, Guys like they didn't Shaquille need me. O'Neal, they, were they didn't need me. That's Kobe Bryant. What was that like, though, to be with those guys? Phil Jackson, the coach. I mean, that you're talking basketball royalty across the board. Yeah, a little bit. It's a blur because you're just every day. You're just you're just trying to be the best you can be, you know. And um, you know, for a month there, I'm trying to secure a spot on the team. Then you make the team, but you don't have a guarantee yet until January. So you're trying to secure your keeping spot on the team. Um, and some of it was financial. Some of it was Derek Fisher came back sooner than expected. Uh, some of it was I didn't think I was playing as well when I wasn't playing as much. So it was, you know, I'm a rookie. It's hard to adjust to. But uh, I often tell people when the kids, little kids come up to me and running clinics and they say, you played for the Lakers. I said, well, yeah, not as long as I wanted to, but I did. And uh, even though it was, you know, I was probably in and out of that gym for two and a half months, um, educationally, uh, experientially, it's tough to top, you know, as far as your first experience, I picked up on a lot of things uh, you know, I still got my Lakers handbook. I think I was probably supposed to, they could probably find me that I didn't <laughs> hand it back in. Um, but 
the things that I was being exposed to that early on, as far as triangles, as far as principles, these are things I've, I've written about getting ready to publish something that in light of those kind of things. And, um, I was being given an education that I was always soaking it in because it's just the way I thought, but team dynamics, all this stuff, um, Phil's philosophies, uh, that, yeah, how do you put a price tag on that? I mean, it's just, you're playing with the best team in the world. It's as simple as that. Was it, I mean, I don't want to say that like you had Phil Jackson to prove he's a great coach, but being around him, was it like immediately, this is why this guy is so special? Yeah, I think, you know, at that point in his career, he had a certain authority and um, respect. I think um, you need that. And when you're dealing with, with guys like Shaq and Kobe and, you know, how high profile situation and in the highest profile cities and, and um, franchises, you need that. And he had that, you know, he had the respect of the room, even when guys might have disagreed with him. And, and, ne- and then even then you're dealing with a much younger Kobe, uh, not nearly the same player he was, uh, maybe talented wise he was, but as far as security and his position, right. there was a lot of that stuff was starting to kind of come to the surface with Shaq and Kobe, um, two radically different personalities at different points in their career. So you could kind of see it. You know, I can remember the conversations of like, yeah, would you stop talking about this to the media? Like, give me a break. That was just Phil being in the meeting room. Um, you know, some of the uh, Eastern meditation times when, you know, Samaki Walker fell asleep in the front row and stuff like that, uh, that you're being exposed to some different philosophies. But he had, a, he had an authority about him. He had an understanding. We had, you know, naturally you're in the triangle, but there were just times that, you know, you talk about a level of coaching. I remember early in the preseason uh, coming into a huddle and he – drew something up and I looked at Lindsay Hunter who I was close with and I loved Lindsay and I said that's definitely going to work you know <laughs> and he I, and he just looked at me and goes yeah that's why he's Phil Jackson and then sure enough it worked um those are the kind of things you're going oh this is a whole nother world of basketball um and I probably didn't appreciate it as much at the time but looking back it was obvious when your time in the NBA I think it was Lakers and Phoenix for yeah. a little bit when you Phoenix let you go, did you think I'll be back? Did you? Yeah, hundred percent. I thought I was going to be back. I, I thought I belonged there. Uh, naturally, you have to think that. Um, I probably didn't. You know, I probably there was the next year. I didn't choose the right place to go. In hindsight, doesn't mean it would have worked out any differently. Um, I had a chance to go play with for Flip Saunders in Minnesota, and we battled out for their third point guard spot. He was one of those guys who kept a third point guard. And then I went to Golden State with Eric Musselman, who was a, who was a rookie head coach. I mean, listen, he's a good coach, but he was a rookie head coach. And that was a mistake um, for me as far as the way I played. Uh, does it mean it would have worked out differently? Not necessarily. I mean, what I did as a player um, wasn't valued then. It's as simple as that. I mean, it's just supply and demand. It's market economy, right? It's... I was off the dribble, shoot the threes in transition. That's what I did better than anybody out there at the time. It was there, and that's the hardest part about for me. Like back in 2002, you could get a shot off the dribble anytime you wanted in the NBA. It was the easiest thing I've ever done. And people think it's crazy. It's no, because you had big slow centers who didn't hedge on ball screens. Nowadays, you got Clint, Clint Capella mm-hmm. switching on you. So people say, hey, you could play in today's NBA. I'm like, mm, I don't know about that, right? Clint Capella one-on-one or no hedge on the ball screen? No hedge on the ball screen? Yes, I could have shot 15 threes wide open and made seven a night. It was that easy. 
But today's NBA is different, and these guys are playing at an incredible high level. So that, I thought I'd be back, but looking back, it's like now when you have a skill that's just not valued at the time, it's understandable. So let's talk about college. Well, first of all, the decision to go to Penn State. Did you, was it a, a slam dunk once they really got involved, uh, or was it a last-minute, not last-minute decision, but how did, how did it play out? It's just funny how it played out. Um, I always wanted to play, when I said big-time basketball, we didn't talk about the Power Five back then, but that's probably what I was thinking, mm-hmm. ACC, Big Ten, SEC, um, especially kind of this, this side of the coast, Big East at the time. Um, and I didn't have a lot of those schools. Uh, I had a lot of mid-majors and what I learned later from coaches is that the the mid to low majors would come see me play and think, we're not getting this guy. And then the high majors didn't even come see me play because I'm playing against, you know, St. James or something during the regular right. season. And who doesn't even exist anymore. But um, looking back, I, I was very lightly recruited because of that. I kind of ended up in a weird vacuum until my playoffs broke out and then I start taking some visits. Um and I essentially committed to Penn State. Uh, they hadn't, they didn't contact me until after my senior year. Bob Hurley Sr. had told him, you need to take a look at this kid. Um, and I took one walk through campus on an unofficial, walked through the arena. They had offered me a scholarship. I said yes. I hadn't seen him play. It, you know, Happy Valley just kind of connected with my soul, so to speak. And that was that was where my heart was, and I just went for it and figured that's where I want to go and I'll make it work. <laughs> and at basketball at State College, at Penn State can be a tough sled. I mean, it's a it can be an uphill sled. You had success there, but uh, overall, how do you look back at your four years? Oh, I'm super thankful. I mean, it's a great community. Um, you know, one of the things that's been true for me throughout my career, I, I hope it'll be true for the rest of my career in coaching, is I love playing for communities. I love playing for the people, so to speak. Like you, you as a player. You bear the name of the community on your chest. And if there's a community connection there, it doesn't get much better. And, you know, I often had that overseas, which I'm thankful for. But um, in state college, it was as good as it gets. Um, You know, it was during the time, like, they struggle now with um, the kind of numbers. But we, you know, you got 10, 12,000 people a night, typically, unless you're playing somebody you're going to beat by 30. Uh, At that time, Bryce Jordan Center wasn't that old. not the greatest arena, to put it mildly, but when you got 12,000, it's, it's not too bad. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we were, at that time, we were good, not great. We, any given night, we could give you a show. Uh, we could let loose and be a lot of fun to watch. So I think that was great. Um, and then you end up with enough success. You know, we went to two NIT Final Fours and um, one down season and then naturally played in the Sweet 16. So from my experience there, I mean, it's, my wife was a women's soccer player. That, that's... It's home for life. And that, you mentioned that that Sweet 16. I thought that group, you had a group that really fit together well basketball-wise. You might not have been the most talented team, but it was a group that made sense from a basketball standpoint. Yep. Uh, Talk to me about that that year you go to the Sweet 16, your senior year. You you guys, you were, if I remember correctly, a bubble team, but you yep. put a run in the Big Ten tournament. Beat Michigan State, right? And that was kind of the game that, that was got the you game. over the finish line. 100%. Um, you know, a lot of times you don't realize what you're doing when it's happening. We had dropped a couple games that were really just inexcusable. And it had led to some toughness with the team and relationships. Uh, but it made us better in the end. And, and I always tell people, I often tell my players now, like, listen, there's no script. 
you know, I, I used this early in the season for us. We had injuries and we lost three in a row that, that we were like, what are we doing? I just said, there's no script to get in the season you want. And you think there is and you think we're going to just roll. And I often use that year as far as the script. I mean, we were back to the wall two and six in the Big Ten kind of thing because our schedule was brutal at the beginning of the Big Ten. And, you know, we were at every top team. And so well, you're not you're not beating those teams. You're not beating Michigan State at Michigan State. You're not beating Illinois at Illinois at the time. So, but we were the kind of team that made sense and didn't make sense at the same time. And and that's just the beauty of basketball. You know, a lot of times, you know, I try to always remember this in coaching. You can get everything right and get everything wrong. And you think you got the talent and you think you got this, and it just doesn't work. Um, or you don't have enough time to make it work. Um, with our group. Um, we were a little bit ahead of the curve, th- shooting the three-point shot. Um, my brother and I in the backcourt, Titus Ivory, was an absolute stud teammate and leader, and he complimented me like no one. Uh, very few people. I've had a couple guys I've played with that just on a personality and a play standpoint, we were just perfect compliments. Titus was one. And then we had Jossie Kleinherd, who was – we had three of us as seniors who were just totally different, and that's why it worked. Um, so at the end of the season, you know, we had senior leadership. We had guys that bought in. We had this huge chip on our shoulder. Like we thought we should win every game, which naturally is like my MO in life. <laughs> um, is, yeah, you don't, you don't think we can do this? Then we're going to do it. And we were convinced. We were going to the tourney. We were going to do something. We thought we should go to the Final Four. And, um, you know, naturally there's a thousand things we didn't control that ended up going our way, you know, bounces this way or that way against Michigan State. But I often tell our guys, like, I would never have come up with that story. Um, but to beat a top three team or two team in the country in a Big Ten tournament at the United Center, uh, I think I went off in the last 12 minutes of the game. It's like, that's one of my greatest basketball memories. Would it have happened if we know we were going to the tourney? No. We would have known we were off the bottle. It wouldn't have been the same urgency mm-hmm. and experience. And then you do that, and it kind of flows into the NSA tournament. So uh, it was an incredible script. Um, and it was incredible to do it for the community, especially because it really is what I came to Penn State to do. I, I, they had been there once in 96, and when I walked on campus, that's what I was thinking, Final Four, Happy Valley, excited about basketball, and you know, when I left, that was true. So you start that tournament, you beat Providence, and then you get the second-round matchup with uh, North Carolina, I think, you guys, were you guys at a 7 or a 10? We were 7, And yeah. they were the 2. They were 2, yep. So... Talk to me specifically the North Carolina game. Uh, what's is this a game you look at even at that point in your career and you look at the matchups and go, yeah, it's North Carolina, but you know what? Why not? We can we can do this. Yeah, I was actually in um, later in our career in Siena. Joe Forte and I were in um, Siena together, uh, and, and we were out at dinner like every night because it was just you know preseason whatever, and we talked about it a lot. And he said he's like, yeah, we had issues and. And I said, yep, we knew. We could tell in the first three minutes of the game. I always tell this story. Um, I think of first TV timeout, I think we were down 11-4. to four. And I looked up at, I think it was Kim Jones and Dave Jones and Mark Brennan sitting up there. And, I, and they'll, they'll tell me this story all the time. I looked up at him. I said, we got this. <laughs> I just mouthed it at him. And they looked at me like I'm an idiot. That They knew I, I was nuts. And you just could sense it. And it wasn't about the score. It was more about the pace. It was about the feel. It was about this team doesn't have it. And we're going to put pressure on them. 
and then we're going to win the game. Um, you have to believe that, but it can't be fake. And our group just believed it. And, um, you know, we lost a little bit of it the next week against Temple, but at that time, that matchup for us, um, was there another two seed in the tournament we beat? I don't know. Um, probably not. Right. Uh, and that's how the NSA tournament works is people think, hey, I'm going to pick this team. It's like a lot of it's just who you match up with. Yep. And if you get the right matchups, you can all of a sudden be playing in the final four. And if you don't, you'll lose in the first or second round. And uh, yeah, it's the same coaching job, right? It's right. the same team. It's just it's just the way it, it works. And that's why the NSA tournament is so much fun. But that certainly was my experience against North Carolina. So this is 2001. So then you mentioned Temple. You get Temple in the Sweet 16 game. John Chaney. How difficult was that game going against that uh, that matchup zone and everything? Part of it was difficult because we had beaten them early in the year. And um, the other part that was difficult is they were better. They had had some injuries. I think Quincy Wadley was out earlier in the year. I think Quinn, uh, Lynn might have had a couple games he missed. So the record wasn't as good. They were a nightmare, whatever they were, 11 or 12 seed. I mean, they knocked off Texas, Florida, mm-hmm. then us, and then lost to Michigan State. Um they were, they were way better than what their seeding was because of their injuries. We knew that. Um, but, again, you talk about getting lucky. I mean, part of the NSA tournament is just handling the chaos of the NSA tournament, you know, the pep rallies and all this other stuff. And we hadn't, we hadn't been there before. Um, it was a 10-10 game. It was all this weird stuff. And we had two guys sick. And what do you, what do you say? You know, my brother's not feeling well and, and Tyler Smith's not feeling well. That's two guys out of our starting five. Right. Um, we probably game planned too much. Uh, looking back, I just, you know, they're in this matchup zone. We're a bunch of shooters. If you were playing them today, you'd say take 47 threes. That's what I would tell our team. Right. If I could go back in a time machine <laughs> and that's your best chance. Eh, back then we probably didn't do it. And, uh, and they got the better of us. They were better that day for sure. Um, but even still, like I, I look, I, I actually showed my team this later in the season. I fouled out at the end of the game on a, dumb, just weird play, and we were making a run. And I had used it to communicate to my guys and my, my seniors especially, like, listen, don't get caught up in the nonsense. Like, every minute counts. Go for it. Like, you don't know how soon this is going to come. Um, and I think it was effective. But, you know, that's, again, matchups. And uh, they were the better team. They were. So that's where it ends. We have to take a break on 101. We will be back with Joe Crispin more after this. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. And we're back here on One on One talking with Rowan University men's basketball coach Joe Crispin. So uh, prior to the break, you were talking about your time at Penn State, you mentioned playing with your brother, John. What was that like? You played with him, high school, then again a couple of years in college. What was that dynamic like? Uh, two things. One, it was way more enjoyable, and I'm way more thankful for it than we were at the time um, because it was probably the norm for us, like most people. Um, two, and, and it was a blast. I mean, we, we were able to, to do some things and experience some things that, you know, it's an incredible gift. Um, two... It was probably hilarious because we were just fierce competitors getting at each other. Probably had a sideshow. Definitely in high school, people would say they really enjoyed the sideshow of us yelling at each other and arguing and, you know, getting at each other. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I think we certainly made the most of it. And um, I think we, looking back, really, really appreciate the opportunity. We had to play uh, at a high level and win in high school, which was just always special. But then to do it on a big stage, um, you know, what's the price tag on that? I right. Mean, it, it, was, it was awesome. Um, but also I think it was great. Uh, and I often tell my, my guys, like, as a coach, the guys that you trust the most – are the guys you can argue with the most. And no, we're just, we're on the same page. And, and my brother and I often had that, and I do think it often helped our teams because it spread. Um, that it was like, no, we can say the hard things, we can do the hard things, and we just go out and win together. It's how we roll. And it's amazing. I, when I asked you earlier about being a coach, if you knew early on, and I said, I, thought, I think I know the answer. When I was covering you back at the WRSC at yeah, State College, yeah, yeah. if you would have asked me, would you and your brother, where are they going to be in, in 20 years? I would have said, Joe's going to be a coach and John's going to be on TV. Yeah. And lo and behold, that's exactly <laughs> that's right. how it's played out. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And yeah, John had that Hollywood element. Um, didn't, never mind saying something in front of the camera, even when he probably shouldn't have um, or held it back. He's probably holding things back more now than he was back then. Um, and I, yeah, you're right. It's just the way – I mean, listen, I'm, a lot of times when you're a, a point guard, you're fighting for your turf in the basketball world. I mean, you see a lot of guys like this. Um from an inner team dynamic, like it, kind of a survival mode, the, the skills I had to learn as a player just inevitably transfer to your life as a coach. Um, you know, the subtleties of a team. How do you just make, help teams win? You know, how do teams just be better than they should be? Um, it, what's better than experience? You know, and every year you're playing with a different group and you might have the same four or five, but then three or four new ones come in and you got to figure it out all over again. Um, yeah, that's where I live. It's probably where I'll live the rest of my life because that's, that's what I know best. Do you enjoy now your brother does games for, is it Fox Sports? Yeah, he's on the Big Ten primarily. does a lot of radio um, and naturally Big Ten. He, I don't know if he had some Fox games this year, but they're owned by Fox. So there's that relationship there. You get a kick of watching him and, and listening to him? Yeah, when he first started, uh, I remember I was in Italy listening to some, you know, whatever games they were. Uh, I was nervous because I'm like, oh, geez, what's he going to come out with? <laughs> uh, that was always his M.O. Um, but even when he first started, I remember saying to my wife, Erin, like, wow, John's going to be good. He's going to be real good. And uh, I think he steals a lot of my stuff. He'll admit to that because um, we're always talking coaching and teams. But he he's really, really good because – um, he's humble, you know, he knows he's a broadcaster, he's not a coach. And a lot of times there's a tough line. Like mm-hmm. I always used to say, I, if I'm going to broadcasting someday out of being a player, I was a telecom major. Um, and even though looking back, I did enjoy my coaching courses way more. Um, I used to always say like the players go into broadcasting and all of a sudden they played hard every day and they had perfect attitudes and all this. <laughs> other stuff. I'm like, dude, I played with you, man. Like you didn't come bring it every day. What are you talking about? calling out these players now you know it's the same thing with coaches who who forget they were once players complaining about coaches and uh the one thing i think john does a really good job of is he brings personality um, but he also brings some depth and insight and a lot of times it can be one or the other right and he also brings a degree of humility that uh he's like listen i know what this coach is trying to do i'm trying to get to know it from their perspective i'm not going to bash him if he's got a different take than i do that's always always tell him don't get lost in broadcaster world or I'll call you out in a second. So 
let's go back to your playing days. When they were over, was it a decision that I've had enough? I want to step away. Was it the offers on the table? Like, eh, how did it? How did the end come? Uh, I had two straight seasons that kind of ended with injury. Uh, nothing major. I had one that was an MCL guy just fell into my knee, and it was playoffs, and that was stunk. Um, so I had to kind of. I didn't have to start over. I had a great contract the next year. I ended up in Ukraine, and then I had a sports hernia injury, and I played through it, um, which probably was a mistake. So my year was just brutal. Like it was just tough. Um, and I ended up last game I played was feeling fantastic and pulled a calf muscle. So here I am traveling back from Ukraine with who knows how much luggage with a pulled calf muscle and a sports hernia on the opposite <laughs> side. It was brutal. And I came back and I had the surgery and I fully hundred percented, a hundred percent expected to play, uh, for another five years, four years. I, I, I was really, I tell people this all the time. I hundred percent felt like I was in my prime. I was playing the best basketball of my life. I was uber confident. I knew who I was. If you don't like me, I'll go somewhere else kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Not as a jerk, but just like, right. hey, I, I know who I am, and I know what I can do for you, and I'm going to help you win, and I enjoyed it. Um, and fully expected to do it. I was healthy. I rehabbed. Um, but for some reason, I, in August, I started just saying no to jobs. July and August, I just kind of like, eh, I don't know about that one, and I don't know about that one, and I said, you know what, I'll wait a few months, give myself – so I was practicing once in a while, working out over Penn State. and um, I was in really good shape, and I just eh, – let me wait, let me wait. I started coaching my kids and some – you know, watching them play, and now I'm enjoying State College. And it just became, you know what, I'm going to coach, and if I don't make the transition now, I'm going to go back overseas and play for four to five years. I just knew I would. And I just started, I didn't even announce retirement. I didn't, I just kept saying no to jobs and uh, ended up moving back to South Jersey. So did I retire or did I just kind of keep saying no to jobs until the point where it was like, eh, I guess I probably am retired at this point. That's more or less what happened. Of course, the next November, I almost went back to Italy. So I, I was saying I'm into coaching, I'm reading books, I'm writing stuff down, I'm, re- I'm preparing, I'm resumes, and then I almost did it again. Um, and fortunately it worked out that I didn't, um, and got connected at Rowan, but did I retire? Yes. But it was more about just kind of fading off, realizing it's time for me to do what I know is next. And that's often the advice I give even older folks who are ready to retire, but especially young guys is if you don't know what's next, I think retirement can be tough. If you know what's next, it's, it's not as intimidating. Did the playing bug still bite? Does it still bite today? doesn't bite today. No, it doesn't. Um, I enjoy it once in a while, but I, it really doesn't. Um, it did. 100% did, especially games and kind of the way I went out because it, you know, I felt I was weird in the playoffs. I was playing a really good game and then all of a sudden, boom, it's done. Right. And I didn't want it to end like that, but eh, it's all good. I was thankful. Um, and really, I, I viewed my playing career for probably my last five to six years as I'm going to play until the time I just know. I've learned what I need to learn to do what I want to do next. I was 32, 33 years old, and I just knew. I know I'm getting – I've gotten it. My education's done here. And that was just kind of my sense. Um, looking back on it, I'm like I'm an idiot because I had some amazing jobs I said no to. Um, but the way it's all worked out, I'm really thankful. 
Talk to me about what is your coaching philosophy? <laughs> um, I want guys to play. I want you to come to a game and want to come again. Um, I want my team to be fearless. I want them to play free. I want to go. I want to take the risks that other people aren't willing to risk. And I want players to own the game. Um, you know, in a nutshell, my coaching philosophy is the golden rule. I coached the way I wanted to be coached. It's probably that simple. Um, my defensive philosophy is I'm going to defend you the way I never wanted to be defended. Um, on offense, I'm going to play offense the way you you can't do anything about it if we play this way. Um, so you know, I coach the way I always wanted to be coached. At least that's always my aim. And just philosophically, um, having played in so many different places, I often tell my players, I spent a lot of time just looking at the coach saying, sit down, I got this. And, and I knew and I understood why it was so difficult for them to do so. But, you know, as a pro, you're like, this is why you're paying me. Right. Relax. I got it. I know how to win. If you don't, just find somebody who you think knows how to win better. Um, but I, it, looking in the college game especially, uh, but even in the pros, you know, everywhere you go, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot to lose. And I hated it. And I resisted it with every ounce of my might. I want to play to win at all costs. Go for it. And if you lose, you lose. But don't lose because you're trying to hold on to the victory. Um, lose being aggressive. Lose playing free. Lose taking the risk. Lose having a blast, essentially. Um, a lot of coaches, I think, make decisions based on um, not so much what they think will win, uh, but what they think will keep them from losing. And I, I just try to resist that at all costs. What is your favorite part about being a head coach right now and least favorite part? When I say least favorite, if there was one part, regardless of how big or small, that you could completely farm off and have taken care of and not have to worry about it, what would it be? Well, I'm at the D3 level. There's a lot of administration. That little nitty-gritty paperwork and stuff like that that you don't have to deal with at a higher level. Um, or at least not nearly as much, you have more help, um, that probably is my biggest um, because it takes me away from what I do best. Um, that's an easy one, and that's why I'm, I'm pretty good at finding help on those fronts actually already. <laughs> um, and uh, the best is yeah, I'm a little different. Like I love the games. A lot of coaches are like I love practice and I love – relationships 100%. The relationships are for life, but I think the relationships are, are just in basketball are knit together in games. It's in the moment. It's when the, the rush of the crowd and the risks that you take and the cheers from the bench, those, those memories you have and those experiences you have together are what, to me, kind of knit together the relationships and make them the most real. So the day-to-day -day is awesome. Um, but I just always wanted to be a guy. Like, I always lived for the games. I always did. I wanted the, the seats packed, and I wanted to see joy on the people's faces when they watched me play. I, that's what I'm still about. Um, that's why we practice. I tell our guys all the time, like, yeah, it's a Tuesday. We might not have had the greatest practice in the world. The game's tomorrow. Who cares? We're good. Let's go have a blast tomorrow. Um, so to me, you know, getting the NCAA tournament, seeing a packed house, crowded people enjoying the game of basketball— to me, there's nothing better. 
And when you're looking at kids recruiting, how long does it take you for, you know, this kid can play for me, I want this kid? Uh, sometimes it, it's usually, it, it's usually if it's the right moment, five minutes. Um, I try to just go with my gut. Um, but sometimes it takes a little longer. Sometimes it takes me getting to know the kid a little bit more or a little bit of insight from other people. Um, you know, I had, I had one kid that um, we didn't get. I lost him to higher level, which is always fun for us. But uh, I watched a ton, and I liked him. But I always like to know, like, what is it that I liked? And, you know, did he play with an edge? Usually I look for an edge, a little chip on the shoulder. He, he embraced the wrists. I liked his energy or his just kind of his his uh, attitude in a good way. Played with some emotion, fire. I look for that. Not, not enough kids do nowadays. They're sterile. They're boring. They're uninspiring, I think. And I look for guys who are different. Um, you know, I wonder why, I guess. But uh, one kid in particular, I remember getting to the end, I'm like, I like this kid. I like this kid. Why? And it, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me. He's going, he makes others better. I don't remember him making a mistake. <laughs> Something as simple as that. Right. There was a subtlety to his game. And, um, you know, I don't want to get pigeonholed. The way we recruit is if, if you're like somebody we already have, he better be graduating soon. I want different. I want diverse. I want, I want to embrace the diversity that I think is the beauty of basketball. I think a lot of times – Teams get boring because you start recruiting all the same kind of kids. Um, I don't want the same kind of kids. I want people who are different than what I have, Some somebody who's going to challenge me as a coach, somebody who's going to challenge his teammates. Um, so, you know, we're a little bit, diff- little bit different in that regard. Um, we try not to have, you know, very few positions. You have two of the same. But that's the way I roll. Joe Crispin, head coach at Rowan University, thanks for stopping by. been a pleasure. Anytime. Episode 3 is in the books. One on One is a sports podcast from KYW News Radio. If you like the show and want to help us out, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. You can help more people find out about the podcast by finding the show on iTunes and leaving a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Leon1060. Thanks again to Joe Crispin, head men's basketball coach at Rowan University down in Glassboro, for joining us. I'm Matt Leon, come back next week for another good conversation with someone you should know more about.